until you depart uh, from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, uh, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And John, I know the King James has a little bit extra text there. We'll talk about that uh, as we go on there. Um, And so they went out and they proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon your word, I pray first and foremost that you would forgive me of my shortcomings and that you would speak through me or in spite of me uh, to your glory and not to mine. I pray that your mercies would be abundant, and I pray that you would call the faith those who do not have faith, and and that you would build up the faith of those uh, who are in need of growing and strengthening, which is all of us. Uh, We pray that you would comfort those who are weary, Uh, and you would encourage those who are discouraged, and that you would build us up as a people that we might indeed proclaim your gospel, going wherever you would send us, and being led wherever you would lead us. Our lives are yours, Father, and we pray that you would be glorified in them. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to confess to you up front, as we go through the gospel of Mark, I think at least thus far, Um, This is both one of the easiest and the hardest texts for me to preach. Uh, Easiest because I've walked the path, um, both as one who has been sent and called to preach and as one who has had to shake the dust off of his feet, and in my case, shake the dust awfully hard off of his feet um, uh, when the message has been rejected. Hardest because it is so personal and there are elements that are still raw, not only for me, but also for my family, uh, many of which for which I need to regularly repent. And, and so hard because sometimes when things are this close, uh, objectivity can be a bit of a challenge. And so uh, with that in mind, that's one of the values of having elders and deacons mature uh, people in the church to to guide me, uh, both as the consistory and uh, as a congregation as a whole, and to um, rebuke me if I go out of bounds um, in in uh, in that and become less than objective. Um, so again, there's a there's a sense that is both easy and hard uh, to tackle this text, um, but I hope to do it faithfully this morning, uh, and I certainly will not over overstep in terms of jump over uh, text just because it is difficult. We need to seek and look at the whole counsel of God and uh, explore and learn from uh, from it, both the things that hit close to home and the things that don't maybe hit as close. I also want to point out to you um, that this is one of those very, very important texts in Jesus' ministry. It's a, it's a turning point Up until now, Jesus has been leading the disciples, and he has been doing the vast majority of all of the ministry with his disciples kind of following along and learning from the Master. And this is really the first time where Jesus is changing gears here. And he now sends out the twelve, two by two, um, to have some on-the-job training, as it were. 
to go and preach and then report back to him in terms of ministry. So there's a there's a, an investment of authority in these men as he sends them out. It anticipates ultimately what will come following Pentecost uh, when the Great Commission is 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 basically set before the church to go out and disciple the nations. But it also simply anticipates the calling that God puts on every pastor, every evangelist. In our modern English word, we like to call them uh, missionaries typically, but the biblical term is evangelist. Um, a missionary never shows up in the Bible. We all have a mission to do. It's the Great Commission. Um, and, and so um, it's, it's the calling of everyone, but it's the calling of every Christian as well. Not every Christian is necessarily called to go out to the ends of the earth, but every Christian is called to disciple their children. Every Christian is called to disciple those people that God places in their lives in, in, in significant ways. Um, so whether that be in the community or in the workplace or, or in our extended families or things along those lines, all of it applies to all of us. And so um, it's a very, very important um, kind of uh, passage, resists a tone really for the rest of Jesus' ministry. It is also a passage where... Matthew and Luke are really, really important um, in terms of the parallels to understand the big picture of what's going on. A lot of times when we read the parallels, Matthew and Luke kind of add a little bit of color, they add a little bit of light, um, add a little bit of extra explanation to what's going on. But in this particular passage, Matthew and Luke kind of really help us get at the essential heart of the text. And um, uh, Mark doesn't give us necessarily all um, that we, we might have. Mark said his purposes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm not, you know, knocking that. But we need to keep Matthew and Luke very much in, in not on the sidelines, but very much in front of us uh, as we read this text this morning. And we'll seek to do that. And so uh, we begin with verse 7. And he called the twelve to him and began to send them. By the way, um, the Greek word that is used here for, for to send um, is apostello, uh, which is where we get the word, it's a root word um, for apostle uh, is drawn. And essentially to be an apostle means that you are, are one who has been sent out with the authority of the one who is sending you. That's the reason we no longer have apostles, because Jesus is not here to send and imbue that kind of authority uh, in the lives of, of his apostles. It's at least one of the reasons. Um, and so this is the context here. He called the twelve, and he began sending them out two by two, uh, and he gave them authority over the spirits um, of uncleanness or unclean spirits, depending on how, how your Bibles want to render that. Luke adds that he also gave them power to heal diseases, uh, which is an important addition there. And Matthew also adds, they were given the power even to raise the dead. And I think that's a very significant thing, because we've only seen Jesus, I think, do that once thus far. And so the, the kinds of miraculous works that Jesus is doing, Jesus is giving authority to these disciples to go, and do those same things. Again, are they're, they're, that's the nature of being an apostle. Um, they, they are carrying with them the authority uh, of the one who sends them. And so Christ is sending them out. Matthew and Luke also record the specifics in terms of what they are being sent out to do. 
Matthew says they are sent out to proclaim that the kingdom of God is hand, is at hand. Notice that this is one of those cases where it doesn't say the kingdom of God is coming. There's plenty of references to that. But this is to say and to say the kingdom of God is at hand. It's present. It is in your midst, in other words. It's here. It's not something that we're waiting for, but it is in your midst. It is, it is with you right now. That's the heart of the gospel. But if we jump down to Mark in verse 12 and just kind of jump ahead a little bit uh, of the text, Mark also gives kind of the practical implications of what that looks like when they go out to preach the gospel, uh, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Mark tells us that they proclaim the people should repent. Okay? I want to make that kind of clear in your minds or highlight that to your minds. Because here's the rub. You cannot proclaim the kingdom unless you proclaim or call the people to repent. The presence of a kingdom means that there is a king. And a king has laws and commands that the people are compelled by virtue of that relationship to obey. When the king speaks, you and I do not have the option to respond, well, I'll think about it. And I'll get back to you. Or... To say, well, you know, I'd rather do something else. I don't really like what it is that you have to say. Or, sorry, but your laws are no longer culturally relevant to us today. When the king speaks, the only thing you have the right to say is, yes, sir, or so may it be. Let your will be known. It's kind of an awful lot like the Lord's Prayer is worded. That's the nature of having a king. And kings have kingdoms. So if we are part of a kingdom, that means we have a king. And that means a king has the right to command and we have a responsibility or an obligation to obey. In the ancient times, people understood that far better than we understand that today. Today we have presidents and we have governors and we have mayors and we have other kinds of representatives in government who tell us all sorts of things and we kind of decide whether we want to obey them or not. In the ancient times, in Jesus' day, if you didn't obey the king, you typically your head was removed from your body. Okay? It was a very permanent ending to your, your rebellion. And that's the problem. Kings have laws, and in our society, we have ignored them. And in our generation, the stewards, who should know the expectations of the king better than anybody else, that would be your consistory folks, um, your elders, your deacons, your pastor. In many cases, they're not even proclaiming the law of the king. And they're giving people license to sin all the more. They're not practicing biblical discipline. And they're not preaching repentance. Yom Kippur, by the way, uh, which is the Day of Atonement in the Jewish culture, uh, is coming up this Tuesday. I thought it was kind of appropriate in terms of the timing as I was thinking about these things. I read an article uh, this week from a, a Jewish rabbi um, leading up to um, or helping to prepare people for atonement that basically says, folks, stop repenting. By the way, that's what the Day of Atonement is all about, is repentance. He says, when you, when you go and you repent, you just feel bad afterwards. And you feel guilty, and you just kind of want to replay all of that bad stuff in your mind. So stop repenting altogether, and just celebrate and do what's good. 
and stop feeling bad about yourself because you couldn't do otherwise anyway. That's, there's nothing biblical in that. That's not biblical at all. I mean, the reality is when you break the law of the king, we should feel bad because we have dishonored the king who's done so much for us. Remind you of your catechism, question 88, you know, what is repentance and conversion? And it talks about the dying of the old man and the making alive of the new man. And that old man is your disobedient self. And the new man is the new creation that is created by Christ. That the new man would love God and delight in obedience to the king's commands. The old man seeks to rebel. Okay, and so I want you to kind of keep this in your mind, the connection there between this kingdom that is here and the importance of repentance and the recognition that you cannot preach the gospel without a call to repentance in, in life. They, they, just, they, they, they go together. They belong together. And before we go back to the text, I want to also highlight that Matthew also records um, that the gospels or that the apostles were to preach um, only amongst the children of Israel, um, the lost children of Israel, and they weren't to go to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Uh, again, this is a practicing event. This is kind of the first on-the-job training that they're being sent out to do, and so Jesus is keeping them amongst people of a similar worldview. Um, a similar kind of uh, set of expectations and ideas um, that they can relate to before he starts sending them out to the Gentiles. We're not at Pentecost just yet. And so I all should, should note that they kind of were sent out two by two. It kind of sounds a little bit like Noah's Ark, you know, in the, the children's story, but it's also a little bit like creation. It's not good for man to be alone. You know, there is great wisdom uh, to tag team ministry. You know, mutual encouragement, support, the division of duties, somebody to watch your back when things aren't going well uh, or, or when things are going on. Um, you know, in part, you know, I, I think the consistency of the church is, is made healthier when you have two people working together rather than relying everything upon on one man to do all of, all of the, the pastoral ministry in a congregation. Um, many churches kind of only look at this from a cost analysis kind of perspective and say, well, we can afford one, so that's all we're going to get. Um, but there are a lot of denominations and movements where bivocational pastors are very, very common. And, and thus, finances aren't the obstacle anymore. Uh, one church locally, I've got a pastor who's a friend of mine who's an assist, associate pastor there. They do have one salaried full-time pastor, but they have several, I think three, associate pastors who are all seminary trained. They are all um, people who have been you know, called to the office and ordained as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they all work full-time jobs in the community, and they serve as assistants or helpers to the full-time pastor uh, in the context of the church. I think that's a pretty healthy model. You know, I look at my time at Gateway Rescue Mission, and the healthiest time that I had is when Todd and I were tag teaming, you know, down there, and I could rely on him, and he could rely on me, and and we we worked together. I mean, it's just a. I, I think I think there's a lot of practical wisdom in just that little thing, just that little couple words 
that Mark includes here in the text um, in terms of how Jesus was sending people out. And by the way, Jesus is going to continue that model um, uh, when he sends out the 72 a little bit later in the gospel. So verses 8 and 9. And he commanded them to take nothing for the road, uh, but only a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their belts. Matthew adds, and not to uh, seek to, to acquire gold, um, but they are to put on sandals and not to, to wear two tunics. Uh, note, and this is something that people confuse oftentimes, this is not a vow of poverty. Folks, these guys are going on a short-term mission trip. They're going for maybe a month or two months at most. They're not going for a long period of time. You know, they're going to go out and they're going to come and circle back to Jesus and and report to him and kind of, and he's going to, Talk to them about the things they learned. This is not a lifestyle. This is just for the moment to teach them about God's daily provision, just as Israel had to learn about God's daily provision in the wilderness, eating manna and drinking the water that God had provided for them. Abundantly, they provided for them. Uh, Again, you start crunching the numbers uh, in terms of the numbers of people. And not just the numbers of people, but the numbers of animals uh, that Israel had as they traveled through the wilderness. And, you know, it's mind-boggling the amount of manna that God had to provide for them to sustain that whole body of people. So God calls them to basically learn that that sense of, of, of obedience, trusting in Him for provision. Matthew records um, Jesus' explanation for why he did this. You received without pay, so give without pay. So not only does this passage not only refute the poverty mindset, it also refutes the prosperity gospel on the other side of the equation. It's interesting to me that how oftentimes you find a passage that ex- that like this that refutes both extremes. And in terms of abuses that people do to the text. And the so-called prosperity churches that say, hey, you know, you need to get put more in the plate and I'm going to make you feel guilty because God's not giving you your blessings until you give. You know, that's not what Jesus is calling his people to do. In fact, he's actually prohibiting them from acquiring gold for themselves, according to Matthew. Uh, and so again, uh, this is something that I think is important to keep in front of our eyes. And so the labor, laborer deserves his wages, but should not exploit his position for personal gain. There's your balancing act. Uh, there's one thing that I always respected, I guess I should say, about Samaritan's Purse, at least in the old days. Uh, they never, at least when they were formed, they never asked for money. They never solicited funds. They simply said, this is what we're doing. This is what we know our needs are going to be. We're just reporting to you. Pray for us. And they always had what they needed, when they needed it. You know, God does that. He does, did that with these apostles. He will do that and can, has continued to do that in, in the lives of his people throughout the ages. Verse 10. He also said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, abide there until you go out of that place. Here's the reason that no second cloak was to be taken. 
they weren't going to be sleeping outside. Typically, in the ancient times, you wore a second cloak so that you kind of had something that would be a sleeping bag to kind of wrap yourself up with, you know, protect yourself from the weather when you're sleeping under the stars. They weren't going to be sleeping under the stars. God was going to provide people to provide them hospitality when they came into a town to preach. Um, and so they are going out trusting not only in daily provision, but also the hospitality of those who will hear the word and respond to that word. By the way, Matthew calls such homes that would give hospitality homes that are worthy, or of those who don't, homes that are not worthy. I think that's an interesting choice of terms. Um, of course, none of us are, are truly worthy. But basically what I think is interesting about was what makes, according to the Gospel of Matthew, a house worthy or not worthy is simply not the size of the house, not the amenities of the house, not the cleanliness of the house, but simply those who were, will, who were willing to welcome people and show hospitality to those who would bring the Gospel. That's what marks a house's worthiness. Verse 11, and if one does not receive you, uh, actually, uh, I think the King James will translate it, if a place does not uh, um, uh, receive you. Is that right? Um, I, again, I don't think that that's a major, major little issue. Uh, or will not hear you when you go out from there. Shake off the dust from your feet, for it is a witness against them. Now, let me say this. Because, again, figures of speech and idioms change over the generations. I don't know that we really appreciate the weightiness of that statement about a testimony against them. If you look up that phrase in the Bible, you will find it showing up in some very conspicuous places um, and in some very, very... If we take it seriously, very, very um, uh, just heavy and difficult places. Um, this is legal terminology. Okay, this is this is a kind of statement that speaks about a judge basically condemning people for their sin and their unjust actions. But it's also in the way that it is, it is used. It is oftentimes meant as a perpetual witness against you that would basically hang over your head or your family or your community for a long period of time. Deuteronomy 4, when Moses is preparing the people to enter into the promised land, knowing that the people will basically become lax and lazy in their faith and that they were going to end, end up embracing idolatry, Moses says, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you that God will cast you out of the land when you do this. So the very created order is called upon. The sky, the, the ground that they, they live on, is, is, is standing as a witness upon them. Generation after generation after generation as a warning, but also a testimony against the people. Okay? When, when Joshua renews the covenant with the people, he sets up a stone of witness against them. And says, this stone is a witness against us that you knew what God had, had expected of you when you don't do it. Micah, which is a great, one of these little minor prophets, some, some wonderful prophecy of, of the Lord, probably the most profound statement that Christians don't know. 
in Micah 6.8, you know, in terms of, oh, what does the Lord expect of you? Okay? You would think that if there's a place where God says, here's three things I expect of you if you're going to be a believer, that every believer would know that. But oftentimes every believer doesn't know that. Okay, so that's Micah 6 8. So this is Micah. Micah stands largely as a book of prophecy. It's kind of like a covenant lawsuit standing against Israel. And so the prophet basically calls God himself as a witness against the people, the eternal God. And then a little bit later on in his prophecy, he calls the mountains and the hills to be witnesses against the people. Israel has lots of mountains and lots of hills. Okay, and basically he's saying, look, every piece of geography that you see, is standing as a perpetual witness against you because of your sin. Okay, That means when you go outside and you look at the mountains, you go, oh, I'm a sinner. When you look at the hills, you go, oh, I'm a sinner. I have failed in this. I mean, this is kind of the language that, that this communicates there. And Jesus is using the same idea. He's using the same language of those who reject the gospel and the message of the gospel, the call for repentance that these disciples would take to a town. Now Jesus continues, and the King James gives us, and, and if you're kind of curious about you know, textual variants and stuff like that, don't get too excited about this, because Matthew includes what King James includes in Mark's gospel too. I mean, and so this is not, there's not anything unbiblical about any of this. I mean, it's not something that some later um, scribe kind of said, well, this would be good to write down. Um, because it is found in Matthew as well. And so it's, it's just basically a, a harmonized piece of there. So he continues, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's devastating. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God in His wrath and judgment. And you're saying basically that is an easier, is an easier judgment than what this city is going to face because they rejected the gospel. Now that raises the questions about whether some are judged more strictly because they've had knowledge than those who don't have knowledge. And we can get into all kinds of discussions about that, and that's kind of a good topics kind of element. Um, but, you know, how one gradates eternal damnation is kind of a kind of a hard concept to, to because eternal damnation is, is bad, regardless of how you want to grade that. You know, I mean, I just even... So, so the point is that Jesus is basically saying, look... These guys are going to stand under condemnation. There is forgiveness. In Christ there is forgiveness of those who repent of their sins, including that sin of rejecting the truth and the truth of those, uh, those who would bring the truth faithfully and teach it to them. Nevertheless, these words still stand as a stark reminder of judgment of those people who essentially kill the prophets and stone those people who are sent to them. That's Luke thirteen thirty four, by the way. In the case of Jerusalem, 70 A.D. is the picture of what that looked like. As I look across Europe, and to a lesser degree, as we look across America, and see how many buildings that were inhabited by once vibrant churches. I wonder how many of those 
messengers that God has sent to those once vibrant churches have been stoned along the way. We are a stiff-necked people uh, who do not easily turn and repent of our sins and our wicked ways. I think those empty churches are a witness against the people who would not listen to the gospel or who would not respond to it. Internal judgment is coming. The text goes on, but before we do that, he asks, I have to ask the question, why, why would cities and people not listen to the gospel? Yeah, it calls us to repent, but it's good news. It's good news. It's good news of the king. I mean, these were people of the same worldview. They, they, they we're not talking about these apostles being sent to a bunch of atheists or a bunch of, of hardened pagans that were worshiping, you know, the gods of thunder or, or, or lightning. These were Jews. These were people who were raised on the Old Testament scriptures, who knew the Old Testament scriptures. Why would they why would they reject the Messiah? Why do they still reject the Messiah now that the Messiah has come? I think the simple answer is that they love the world and the things in it more than they love the things of God and Christ's eternal truth. John warns, do not love the world or those things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Devastating statements. But you can lead a person to the source of living water. But it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to make them drink. We are the leaders at best, but we can't make them drink. Verse 12. We've already discussed, but this is where Mark records the practical. They went and preached repentance, which leads us to verse 13. Along with the preaching um, of repentance, they cast out many demons, and they anointed those who were sick with olive oil, and they healed them. And again, a testimony to their authority, or the authority that of Christ that had been invested in them. As we close this morning, though, I want to do so, rather than looking back at the text, I want to look ahead at the text to come. Um, because the text that Mark records next is that of the execution of John the Baptist. And I think Mark's placement of that record here uh, is meant to be a sobering reminder to us that oftentimes when the gospel is preached and is preached faithfully, it comes with consequences. And sometimes those consequences are life and death consequences. Certainly foreshadows the deaths of almost every one of these apostles uh, that went out. But it's a reminder to us, too, that to borrow the words of Hebrews 11.8, that if we're going to become numbered alongside of those, who, those, quote-unquote, of whom the world was not worthy, we must be faithful. But that faithfulness means we must be faithful even to death, and even when we face opposition and persecution. And we need to trust God for the consequences, um, because those consequences in the scriptures are very dire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, and as we come before you, knowing that you are a great and glorious God, but that you, you are our King, 
and you intend that we listen to you and that we are obedient to your command and that you intend that the world is obedient to your command and that you will bring judgment to come upon upon those who rebel against you and who do not listen, both who are inside of the church and who are outside of the church. We praise you and that you have, have given us a, a, a way away from, a way out from that judgment in Christ Jesus. We can't get there on our own. We have to trust that your spirit will move in us and that he will move in others as well. But Father, I pray that you would also make us witnesses and that we would testify. Testify to the people around us, the people that we love, the people that we interact with, the people that we work with, the people uh, who we might just bump into at the grocery store. Um, We would testify that there is one God and He is sovereign and He is a lawgiver and expects His laws to be obeyed. And if we are going to see anything but judgment. And we need your Holy Spirit, and we should be striving for obedience. Father, we praise you, and we lay our lives before you, knowing that we're not capable of doing that on our own. It requires your Holy Spirit, so may he move in us, and may you be glorified by us. May we show you our love through our obedience. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Oh my God.